Dear Quest community, welcome to this special series that we're doing with the leaders of the RIA aggregator and integrators. So these are the firms in the registered investment advisory industry that are doing what is now 91% of the deals, which are mainly these private equity funded, larger RIAs that are looking to buy up and are buying up and doing many, many deals in the space. Other RIA firms, whether they're independent or sometimes from IBD platforms or even doing some deals with wirehouse uh, advisors. Um, so we are fortunate enough to have some of the, the leading firms in the industry doing these deals, and we have them on uh, in this special series so that people who are interested, right, advisors in the industry who are potentially interested in selling their firms can understand the different models out there. Because one of the benefits of the uh, evolution and the maturation of the RA space has been that there are more aggregators and integrators, there's more funding for these, there's more private equity. But as that happens, there also is more confusion as to all these different options out there. What are the different models? Why is one better than the other? What is the best fit for me? So the purpose of this series is to give the opportunity for each of these amazing firms to talk about their different models, talk about who they're looking to target, who they attract, and have you be in a better position as a potential seller to understand your options. And for those of you who are not in the RA space, you know, I would listen anyway. It's also a fascinating look at how the industry is evolved and how an industry matures and frankly, what the different acquisition models are that could be applied even in other industries. So check out all the videos in this special series on the RIA aggregator and integrators. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Matt Cooper is the president of Beacon Point Advisors a national RIA headquartered in Newport Beach, California, with offices throughout the country, which has been very, very active in the M&A space, you know, here. And that's why well, I'm having Matt on as part of this series. Matt, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Hey, great to be here, Corey. Thanks for having me. So listen, Matt, before we get into all the deals that you've been doing and the model that you have to attract potential sellers to, to begin point and all that good stuff, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is the president of an RAA firm that's aggregating other firms probably wasn't in at that age, but you tell me. No, I, I, I had no idea really what I wanted to be at that point. I kind of stumbled into this field because I was in the life insurance business directly out of college and that firm developed an RIA and I kind of learned about it and here we are. Love it. Love it. And one more question, thinking back. What was the first deal of any type that you did? It could have been something small as a kid or early in your career or whatever comes to mind. It's interesting. The role that I played in the life insurance business was interacting with privately held business owners. So cross-purchase life insurance for a buy-on of a spouse, should somebody pass up. You know, I was in a transactional business right out of college. And that probably, that probably helped me a lot when it came to actually building 
point early in the, the inorganic stuff that we're doing now. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. That's really what we're mainly here to talk about. As folks are in the industry know, and I, and I mentioned in the intro, I mean, this, what an evolution in, in this, in this uh, industry that you, you and I have spent the last number of decades in early on, there wasn't a lot of money in the space, right? There certainly a lot, a lot of deals. I mean, when I say often is it's just, it's a classic maturing industry. But before we get to the industry in general, let's, let's talk specifically about, I mean, you guys have, it's amazing. You've done something like 20 deals in the last couple of years or something like that, the last 18 months. Yeah, we, we've done since March of 2020, when we were running our first capital partner. Prior to that, we had no outside capital in the business, but we've done 19 plus five. So we've done 24 transactions in the last two and a half years. Wow. That's yeah. impressive. So let's talk a little bit about that decision to bring in the capital partner and who you brought in and what's, it, what's that's allowed you to do. Well, originally we, we brought in a capital partner because we have two underlying RIAs. We have a holding company. And one was meant specifically for the inorganic growth side of the business. And we thought we had perfect alignment between the two RIAs, but over time, as the, as the M&A focused RIA got larger, by the way, the marketplace saw them as the same, the brand right. is, everything's the same. But as, as the M&A oriented RIA got larger, we started to see some misalignment. Plus we had a couple of older shareholders that wanted to take all of their chips off the table, find full liquidity. So. It just was the right time to bring in outside capital, merge the two together. Most of the shareholders rolled the majority of their equity forward in that transaction, but yep. we took some off too. Great. And and who uh, and so who, who are your capital partners now? So the original one was Avery Partners. And then at the end of last year, we recapped the company again. And KKR is our private equity program. Sure. So that's great. Obviously, KKR is a big player, a lot of, a lot of powder there and uh, strategic help and that kind of stuff. So you really have, I mean, listen, when, when we talk about aggregators, integrators, the people who are doing deals in this space at the DeVoe conference, I say, I think they said the top integrators and aggregators are doing 91% of the deals in the space. Um, but people get on that list with companies get on a list with five, six deals in a year. So let's say you've done 24 over two years, but still, so you guys have been very, very active. What does it take to do that kind of volume? I mean, a lot of, a lot of people would, obviously you got to integrate these deals. You got to bring them in. How are you able to do so many uh, deals so effectively? Well, first of all, it's not a hobby. I mean, you, it is a deliberate exercise and, and we have teams now built out that cover both the, the original deal. So sourcing it, going through the diligence process to the LOI. And then we have an integration team that also post LOI jumps in on the due diligence, uh, all the department heads that can point are a part of that process. And then, and then we have a, um, that integration team continues post close to get the firms integrated. And, and, you know, knowing just from we've done this so many times now, knowing when to push fast on something versus when to relax on a little bit and let the, the local team that, that just joined kind of catch up. So it's a, an experience with having, being fully staffed and, and organized and doing so, but then also having the experience to know when it's time to push on the gas and when it's time to death the brakes. Yeah. Love it. So let's talk about your model, right? There's, there's a conversation out there of aggregators and integrators and I mean, I don't know that, uh, I mean, I think it's a useful distinction, but I think many of the models have some blend, right? Um, you know, talk about, uh, about your model, the people, how much do they integrate? How much independence do they have? How, what happens on the branding? All that kind of, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So we're a fully integrated model, meaning one tech stack, one ADB, one brand, one, one beacon way of doing things. Now that said, there's so much variety of choice on the investment platform or how they want to do financial planning for cloud. We use both eMoney and MoneyGuide Pro. 
things like that. But we want to tell a consistent story in the marketplace. So what we did is we, we built a story around our all wealth approach. Yep. That is really three pillars and it gives the local team flexibility and where they want to go deep with a client based on what the client needs and in their own voice and personality, because our Boston team has a different personality than our Plano, Texas team, which is different than Seattle and so on. But we are very discerning about who we invite under the tent with us because we pride ourselves on being so collaborative as a, as a group, we really need, you know, those who are, are, they're aligned with us in terms of their thinking. I mean, the, the good news is it's a people business. So most of the people you run into are nice people, but the question is, are they confident, self-starting, creative entrepreneurs that have enough humility to work well with all the other partners around the country as we build this thing to serve clients? So you mentioned three pillars. So what are they? Access to institutional quality investments, life and legacy planning, and then impact initiatives. And each one of those has quite a bit of depth to it. Sure, sure. That's great. So, so with that model, who are you attracting? And, and, and I often think as importantly, who are you not attracting? I mean, one of the things that I talk to about with my clients who are looking to do acquisitions is I'll say to them, hey, listen, first of all, what, what are you looking at in terms of model? What's your value proposition out there, right? How are you going to distinguish yourself from others? And one of the things I always encourage them to do is to do that, to do that body of work, because not only does it make it clearer to the people you are looking to attract, but it actually helps you not waste time, right? On the people who don't fit your model. So talk to us a little bit about within that in fully integrated model, you know, where you want people who are collaborative and working together, who's the right fit for that and who's not the right fit. So we, we, we target firms that are between 300 million and 2 billion in assets. Yep. From experience, those are the people that we can add the most value to their future. They tend to be planning first type folks or have a real sincere interest in getting to a planning first kind of mentality or approach with their clients, I should say. The, the people that, that we attract are, it's interesting because I was told when we first started doing any form of inorganic M&A strategy that what we had was a great succession type plan. Yeah. We're not attracting people who want to exit overnight. The people that, that join us, they really feel like the next five, 10, 15 years for them are going to be bigger and better than the previous five to 10 years. So it's, it's a good group of energetic folks that want to be around and help us build a, a great long-term operating company for the, for the clients. And so to that end, when we do transactions where there's always some equity involved in the deal. Now, if it's an older principal that legitimately wants to retire, but we've got a great G2 in place, that person may take all the cash or a big chunk of the cash. You guys take more of the equity, but that's fine. Sure. And, and are you, is it all purchasing of independent RA firms? Are you doing any teams out of wirehouses or IBDs? So who are you looking at or what have you done deals with? So we've a couple of things we've self-sourced all of our deals, except for three that came from a sell side intermediary. The people that we're attracting are predominantly standalone RIAs. However, we've done four or five that are affiliated with independent broker dealers using their corporate RIA and they have some legacy BD businesses like annuity trails. We put that over to friendly RIA friendly broker dealer. Yep. We have not, knock on wood, to date, we have not, we're actually working on something that's very material for us right now that is in that realm of the wirehouse team kind of thing. But to date, we haven't, we haven't yet done a true wirehouse team breakaway. Okay. And so, so that's interesting. So, you, so you've done both, mostly independent of it, and then you might uh, IBDs and, and now maybe, who knows, right? We'll see what happens. So that's great. So you started talking about a few things that, that also go to, you know, it's interesting how these things develop, right? You said you, 
you thought it might be more succession oriented, but now it's really not in most cases, people looking to stay on. So, and you mentioned, okay, so that's part of why we do an equity piece. And, and I love that comment because one of the things I, I talk to clients often about is you want to, you want to create your structure to be attractive to the people who are going to be involved yeah. and somebody wants to be involved. I mean, one of the things that I know, cause I do a lot of sell side is especially for people who have longer in the industry, they say, well, do I want to take all my chips off the table right now? Right. And, th and there are options out there where, where, where people, there are firms that are doing minority, um, investments, uh, where Perfect. they can take a small one of their chips off the table. Mm -hmm. um, but the other way to do it is that they do, do do a full acquisition, but then what they're doing is they're getting equity and they still have, the, they still have upside right there. They, uh, so talk to us a little bit about that model. I mean, is there a certain, and obviously what goes without saying in this interview is disclose whatever you're comfortable with, don't disclose, what's going sure. But is there, is there a, a particular percentage of equity that you, that you do with these deals and, and what else is, what else is set up in the model on the way you usually do it? Yeah, what's interesting is the first nine deals that we did with the two separate RIAs, those first nine were 100% equity swaps into that, sec that second RIA. Yep. And that's what led us to really understand. And we wouldn't do it deliberately. We did it because we didn't have the cash at the time. Right. But, right. And so they would, they would swap in equity. What we ended up with was a group that on average was in their mid to early 40s. Um, and we're really excited about growing. And it was like, oh, wow, we learned something there. So having equity in the mix is important. but We'll use anywhere from 20% to 60% equity. Equity is the most expensive form of consideration for us. So we want to be careful in the way that we do that, but we're comfortable going as high as 60%. Typically, I would say if it was a typical deal, it's somewhere in the high 30 percentages in terms of equity. And it's interesting. And I know it's, this is not the kind of deals you're doing, but I'd like to compare and contrast. But there are very strong views throughout the industry on all sides on the advantages and disadvantages of the minority investors, right? Some people say, hey, it's, it's a great thing because you get to take some chips off the table, you get growth capital, if you're leave the money in or whatever percentage, and, and and you still get to own your firm and all that kind of good stuff. Downside that you'll hear often is, well, you're giving up all kinds of control rights <laughs> without getting bought out for the, for the entire amount, right? You got a minority holding yeah. now and you got, you got to stay within budgets and you can't do certain things. Talk to me a little bit about, we're not talking about any particular providers out there, we're not going to give any names, but like, are you even selling against people considering minority, uh, deals or, or, or are those really just different, different folks that you don't come across? Yeah, we, we don't end up competing with them much because our model is so much different than that. It's interesting though, having been on the sell side twice in the last three years has really informed myself and the rest of the team as buyers, right? Like you get a little bit of that same emotional thing over the control and all of that. I, I will say, it seems like our experience anyway, has been nothing but positive with the two private equity partners. They really understand that it's a people business. Assets go up and down the elevator, use the cliche, but so far so good. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit more about these, what these targets. Uh, you talked about size, you talked about, it sounds like most of the people who have some runway. But you, but you did also mention this conversation of G2 and, and, and retiring advisors. And we certainly have situations. I mean, I got a, you know, a couple of clients now where you got, you know, older generation, like younger generation. And there, that can definitely cause a tension in these kind of deals, right? Because the different, just because of the different stage of life, folks have different objectives. And you alluded to one of the sort of, I don't want to say easy, but one of the classic ways to try to solve that, where, which is that you shift more cash to one and more equity to the other. But uh, talk to us a little bit more about uh, you running across a number of those deals with G2 in place and, 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 and how do you attract those, structure those, distinguish yourself, make it attractive 
to the younger folks who may not always, but may be more inclined to say, hey, why don't we stay independent longer because I got some more runway. That's right. In fact, we have one of those right now that we're, that we're trying to get as much information to the hands of G2 as we possibly can so they're comfortable with their future. And that's really it. It's, it's, it's also having real conversations around, look, by giving up a little bit of control over things that you think are so important today, you're going to gain much more control over your long-term outcome. Yep. And so when you merge into a larger firm, like a Bitcoin point or whatever, it's diversification. It's not just the cash equity, but it's the fact that your equity is now repositioned in a format where there's 40 other offices or whatever, working hard to protect you. Yes, we see that all the time. Hopefully when there's a solid G2 in place, they've already been equitized at some level. Yep. We have run into cases a couple of times where G1, the founder has yet to equitize G2 and there's a, a desire to kind of kick it down a can to uh, kick the can down the road to us. And I uh, think of three where we successfully were able to uh, talk them into taking care of that issue immediately proceeding or at the transaction. So everybody's happy, but I think, look, one of the reasons why we chose KKR is because they're big, big fans of broad-based employee ownership. So everybody at Beacon Point has some form of equity ownership, whether it's a general equity pool or the more targeted equity pool or whatever. So we're, we're huge fans of equity in the, in everybody's hands, frankly. Yeah. And listen, that's, that's interesting because that's also a fundamental, like philosophical split, you know, you see, it's, you know, in, in various industries and certainly in this industry and, and, and certainly among funders, right? There, there is another camp that says that, you know, you don't want, you don't want equity so broadly distributed, complicated cap tables. People always want to have a say, blah, 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 blah. You want what central, you know, but obviously you've, you've, you've not only bought into, but I'm sure that was a strong part of your philosophy of why you, why you chose to work with KKR who's aligned with that. Completely. Yeah. So what is, uh, I mean, listen, obviously there's obvious reasons why that, that, that makes sense in terms of having more people have equity and that and upside, et cetera. But we all know that equity that only works if there's, if there is at some point, some monetization, right? Other yeah. equity. Um, and we've obviously seen very few, but some folks go public in this space. We've seen other folks get acquired. Is there a particular trajectory that you, you guys are on that, that, that you willing to publicly talk about in terms of what the intention is? Yeah, sure. So a couple of things, this, this subject matter right here actually helps plan G2 along because in the typical, it's an older founder that wants the younger folks to buy some minority interest, right. it's suspicious that this person, first of all, they have zero control. And they have to lever up many times, oftentimes to make the purchase. So all their free cash flow is going to sort of say, and then you get a market like this and they're having trouble making the debt payments. So this allows them to diversify and, and, and to kind of get out from underneath that single owner control. So, uh, actually I had, uh, our, our investment bankers on the KKR deal were Goldman Sachs. Yep. And so I had a, a conversation with them just recently about what are our options if we, if we hit our goals, which. Most private equity firms run on a three times invested capital, multiple invested capital, and then they're looking for an exit. Cars are bigger than that. That's just naturally the way that we tick. But so if we hit our goals, are, do we have the option of recapping again and replacing KKR with a single sponsor, private equity sponsor? And they said, yeah, even at that size, a single sponsor could, could do the deal or KKR could sell us in this fund and roll us to another fund or. Yep. They could do that and bring in a second private equity firm alongside of us. Those are the most likely outcomes. Then you've got the option of going public. Frankly, that makes my head want to explode. So, uh, 
And I don't think she wants to, to gain on that one either. And then the, the last would be selling to a strategic. And I think if I brought that up the way that United Capital sold Golden, yep. if I brought that up in a partner's meeting, I'd probably get tarred and feathered. So, <laughs> uh, I think the, the first three scenarios are the most likely we recap with another private equity partner. It's, it's likely, you know, anywhere from four to seven years from now. Yep. Cause just did it six months ago, 10 months ago now. Yeah. And, and, and listen to, I mean, United Capital is a good example of, uh, somebody went in, in that direction, but I don't believe, and I'm not, you can comment on this or not. I, I, I don't believe that was Joe Durant's intention from day one. I think at, at some point what happens sometimes is you, you run out of funders and replace what you have, and then and you're not in a position to, to go public. You haven't hit those targets and you know, whatever, and you, your option shrinks. So I think it's, I, I don't think that was the intention from day one. Yeah. I, I don't know even enough. We know them very well. We used to be on the floor below United Capital. That's funny. And it has nothing to do with the fact that we actually ended up being an acquirer at some point. When, when we did this, started doing this in 2011, it was really just Focus, Hightower, and United Capital. And right. Who, who are these people on the floor below us that are doing these yeah. swap things? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. And I want to get to a conversation on how this industry's matured all the places that have come in. But before we do that, I, I want to focus on one more thing. Because you alluded to it, and that is this this growth assistance or this ability potentially to grow, and that and that addresses anybody who comes in who has got, who has a uh, any tail left on the you know you know it was not a quick succession deal. Certainly, it's a concern of G two. How do I mean? One of the things that I've talked to my clients about is sometimes they say, "Well, am I am I better off betting that I can grow faster, rolled into a bigger place, or that I versus growing faster on my own?" and you listen, lately at various of the conferences, the last few years, the bull market has come, has, has come a lot, right? I mean, I remember one of the quotes I love from, there was a, a panel of billionaires some years ago in an event I saw, and the guy's comment was that because he had he had gone bankrupt at some point, like had a big company and gone bankrupt and then built, built it up again or whatever. And somebody asked him, what, what was his mistake in the time that things he had trouble? And he said, I mistook a bull market for brilliance. Which I, it's a line I love. So. So, and, and, and you listen up until very recently, right? It's easy for, for folks, and especially in this field, the mistake of bull market the brilliance, because everybody was growing, right? Organically, but most of it was because of gains and returns as opposed to a true organic growth. And if we look at the growth rates outside of the bigger players, like you guys, they're somewhere around 3%, right? So they're not significant. So I think the most people, the math should be easy, but I certainly have clients who have been growing faster than that. And one of the analyses they're making is. Hey, how the, especially if they have runway is how these guys can help me grow faster than I, I do on my own. Right. So the answer to that is what if you were able to spend 80% of your time just on the area where you're best in terms of business development or whatever. So yeah, freeing up, getting stuff out of their way, allowing them to focus, bigger brand, bigger story. We've got a real push digitally, digitally and data driven through Salesforce and everything else we do from a marketing perspective. That really helps these guys. I'm going to make sure this is off so it doesn't beep in our, but 
Yeah. And, and the, then the question is, how well do they work with others? Or maybe they can find a model where they don't have to work with others. But in our case, it's, you know, how well do you work with others? So we were not for everybody, but I would say we're for enough people that, that have been able to build a pretty good business. And some people just want to go it on their own and that's, that's their risk to take and their, it's their business. So I wish them all work. Doesn't do us any good or anybody any good for people to fail. Large, small, aggregator, non-aggregator, doesn't matter. We should all be rooting for each other, frankly. Yeah, I, lo I love that. I mean, I, I happen to think that all those industries matured a lot from you and I were talking about having launched eight, nine years ago, and that was a whole different off air, but I still think this is far from a mature in industry. I mean, there's. There's still a huge amount of room for growth. No, oh, I would agree. It feels, it feels definitely different today than it did just three or four years ago with respect to the number of buyers, the, the different options for the sellers, the sophistication yep. of both buy side and sell side. Sellers are much more informed and much savvier than they were just like five years ago. So I think it's, a, it's an evolving and more, it's a, it's a marketplace that's becoming more perfect, if you will, but it's nowhere near. I mean, there's more RIAs created every year than are absorbed by this consolidation movement. So it's, it's an expanding universe. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And I was, I was on with a reporter this morning and I made that same point because as long as the inflow into the industry, right, as long as the move to independence continues to outpace the consolidation, then obviously there's a lot, lot more runway to go in my mind. So, so to talk about, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, obviously there's, I mean. Boy, there was no money in this space a dozen years ago, right? Even you know, barely, even on the lending side, lenders started to come in. Now, comparatively, money seems to be flooding in. Um, but talk about that evolution a little bit, and then to the extent you have a view on, like, where, where is it going to go from here? So, I, I do think we're going to get to a place where there's a dozen, 15, 20 major players in the industry. I think the small shops will remain. Because some people like to offer in a, in a smaller environment where they're in this, all the decisions all day long, and that's fine too. And they may have a particular niche, planning niche or something that they do that, that they can operate very profitably. I, I think that the, that the massively profitable lifestyle business probably gets chewed up a little bit. You're not going to be able to hire. You used to, you used to be able to just hire like two people who assist one advisor. And they, they did a job, right? They just had a job. There wasn't a real career. And so you could keep those expenses, the payroll expenses down very low. I think that's probably going to devolve, go away over the coming years. And then I think, and then I think we're in, you know, we're in a real interesting position where you've got major independent RIAs competing with major wirehouses. And I think everybody starts to look more and more alike. The good news is that more and more people need financial advice. Well, a lot of money is going to transfer from the boomer generation down and more people need financial advice. And there are fewer and fewer advisors in the industry. So for those of us who are in and have got some runway, the secular trend in terms of people needing help is there kind of lifting the all boats up. The bad news is, is we do need more advisors in the industry. And so I think I think that the, the large RIAs evolving into real training centers, growing their people up as professionals, it's coming. I mean, you're seeing it at Creative Planning or Mariner, or we do it. It just depends. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the whole industry is becoming more professionalized and the M&A stuff is becoming, well, it's a completely different ballgame from when, when we're starting. Oh yeah, no question. You made this comment about uh, the 12, 15, 20 top and looking 
warlike wirehouses. And that's something that some people have expressed some fear about, right? As this consolidation and aggregation in the space, as firms get bigger. I mean, mm -hmm. listen, what we consider a, a small firm now was, was at least a medium sized firm, but not too long ago, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the standards have gone up. So what do you think that risk is of, and have you, I mean, and I'm assuming there's a desire to avoid that, right? Because everybody in this, in the space of a lot of them have run from that model. So how do you address those fears and what do you do to be able to scale and at the same time? Because listen, I, I, I'll say one thing. A lot of, we do a lot of breakaway work in, in addition to the M&A work, right? And one of the things that certainly advice to complain about is the level of, of uh, dealing with compliance. And, and a lot of compliance is not true compliance. It's risk management that the big firms do. And one of the things I often say is, listen, I sort of don't blame them in a way for some stuff, right? When you are that big and you yeah. have, have many advisors and you almost have to manage down to the lowest common denominator because otherwise you can run yourself into trouble. So how, how do you, or people in the industry, not necessarily being point alone, but I'm sure you look at this or anybody scale in a way that doesn't create those pressures to create some of the environments and protections that the warehouses have that frankly are very anathema to the independent model. So well, a couple of things. I think what, what you're going to see is ultimately you're going to have breakaways from the larger RIAs. So it's going to start, you know, it's just, so it'll, it'll be consolidating and fragmenting at the same time to a certain extent. For those firms that don't pay particular attention to culture and broad-based ownership, yeah. Those are two really key factors. I mean, we really count on our partners around the country to help us shape and steer the business. So there's committee system, and then there's an advisory committee of those partners from around the country that then inform us on the board about what the priorities should be for serving clients and, and, and an environment for the team, the team experience. Yep. So if they're, the way I explain it is how would you have liked to have been uh, an early advisor at Merrill Lynch on the Merrill Lynch platform? Carl, like 1958, but you were also the owner of the Merrill Lynch platform. So you're, you're on the Beacon Point platform, but you also own the Beacon Point platform with all of us. So it's, and that kind of thing I, I think helps. And then it's, it's those are decisions. Are they doing it in a vacuum or are they doing it really with the input of their partners and peers around the country? We don't make decisions in a vacuum and we try to make everybody genuinely experience that they're involved in the shaping and running of the company long-term. Now we do all the heavy lifting because that's what, that's why they joined us, but they don't lose that sense of kind of con not control, but being part of the decision-making process. Yeah. Now, can we do that? So we're 25 billion or so with 160 licensed advisors. So 10 times that it's only 1600 advisors. So we go 25 billion to 250 billion with 1600 advisors. That's a really nice business over the next 10 years that I think we we built something that still feels like a family and that we're very proud of. Yeah. And, and it's still a fraction of the warehouse size, even, even with that growth, right? Tiny. Yeah. Yeah. So, so obviously listen, some of your quote unquote competitors out there, some of the people are going to have on this series at the other aggregators, integrators, or in their case, maybe more aggregators, very different models, right? They, they had built out, I mean, uh, focus financials, right? One of them, right? Summit does as much. I mean, I, we list a bunch. Where part of what they sell is, oh, you can keep, you, you know, you can have your own brand then you can have independence and you can all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, other than the folks that sort of, I mean, there are some folks that have a strong, when I say advisors who have a strong preference one way or the other, uh, off the bat, but then there are some who are open, right. To the conversation. And, uh, you know, so do you deal with folks that say, Hey, I'm really leaning towards having my own brand and 
What do you what do you say to those folks uh, in terms of the? I mean, you've alluded to some of them, but let's address it directly. What do you say to those folks in terms of the advantages of having a real integrated model? Well, a, a truly integrated model with one brand, one tech stack, one compliance department, and all that is infinitely more scalable. I think we think, and we believe it drives enterprise value. There may be another turn or two or three in terms of the multiple at the end of the day because of that. And our capital partner, KKR, was Focus Financials, private equity backer, not too long ago. So they've seen the, that type of model that's not fully integrated, and now they're involved in a fully integrated model. So I think that they, there's a clear you know, follow the money. So that capital saw that and flowed back in a, a more fully integrated model. And I think, I think Focus is a wonderful business. I'm not, not going there, but I just, I prefer the fully integrated approach. Got it. Got it. All right. So listen, let's talk a little bit about right now, as we record this in the middle of October, I mean, this will release a little later, but in the middle of October of 2022, obviously the market has, has not been as, uh, as good as we'd like it, or as good as it's been for the last 10 plus years. You know, we've got some headwinds in terms of inflation, all the stuff that happens in the world, whether it's the Russian Ukraine war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all these things that we're hearing talk of the R word, which I, I hate to play any role in it and having anything become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? In terms of recession, blah, blah, blah. But so at the same time, we don't want to, we don't want to uh, help cause those things, but at the same time as business owners, and we, we, we need to look at that. So what are you looking at now? How are you seeing it affecting deal flow, valuation structures, if at all? So we're not seeing it affect deal flow. So we're still seeing quite a few opportunities and I, I literally spent most of the day today on Zoom calls with potential new partners as initial, my initial introduction to them. So it's, it's, it's still active now, now people do want to price off of Q1, Q2, and we can't do that because we need to, we need to make sure that we have a real picture of the business that we're buying in, in its current state. But what we can do with structure is, is take into account that, look, we may be, we may be transacting in a trough and this person's going to be our partner for the next 10 years plus whatever. And we want to make sure they're happy. And we don't want them two years from now feeling like they left a lot of money on the table when they did a bad deal. So we're putting recovery-based turnouts, growth incentives, recovery yep. around. So that include market, but could do it with net flows, organic flows from new clients, existing clients, where the market could help them out. So yep. get back where they were. And we'll pay them, we'll pay them radically from dollar one up to wherever they end up by that date. Yep. Yeah. And that makes sense. And frankly, it's consistent with what I'm seeing in the market. I mean, I literally had my first client the other day pull back on, they, they work with a banker and they stopped the process. First one I've seen all of our, we have many, many other deals that are all going forward. And yeah, there's some adjustment to the terms in a fair way that allows that de-risks the deal a bit for the acquirer. So they're not paying for money that may not show up if things continue to be bad. But at the same time, frankly, I've seen most of the players out there willing to Make sure that there's an ability to, 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 to recover purchase price if things come back up. And, and listen, yeah. smart buyers are willing to, I mean, like you said, you're not going to get over on anybody. You just don't want to pay for revenue that doesn't materialize. But if it does, why wouldn't you want to pay for it? Right. Right. Exactly. Right. I think that hopefully most of the damage is already done in the fixed income markets. And so the RIA community will start to get the benefit of the bonds, which have been kind of like not helpful this year. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. Right. Exactly. Good stuff. All right. So is there anything else, whether it's insights on, on the market deals or anything else that I haven't asked you about being in point that you want to let the audience know? No, I think you know, we've kind of hit all the 
major aspects of what's going on out there. Our focus is really just continuing to have quality conversations with quality people through our own means. And my big, my big issue with intermediaries, sell side intermediaries being involved is, is the inability to really get to know the sell side people, principles as well as we should in order to maintain that culture and not have the issues of coming to the next Merrill Lynch and pulling flying out the windows because it doesn't feel like a family anymore. So we, and that's my only complaint is I think that there's probably some deals that are getting done at the, at the top bidder level that maybe aren't the best longer term. The other thing I would say, if you're taking equity in these type of transactions into consideration, really understand what that equity represents and who's back in the balance sheet of that that firm, because different, different firms like ours are at different stages in their life cycle. They may be six, seven private equity sponsors into it, or they may be just at their first one. And what are the units valued at? How much, how much of the firm does the private equity firm own? What are, what are the protections? If they're a minority investor, what are they? And if they're a majority, do they control the board? All of that fun stuff. It's all important and, and it should be transparent to the seller. Yeah, that reverse due diligence, so to speak, is, is crucial. And one of the things that I uh, advise my clients on the sell side is to, this is the way I look at it. I say, I say, listen, you should look at this as if you're getting 100% cash for the deal. And then you're making an investment decision for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% in your case, right? Whatever the percentage is yep. uh, into the, 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 the buyer, right? And would you make that investment? You should be analyzing it as an investment because that's effectively what it is. I mean, it's easy to sort of skip that over, but the truth is if you have an equity piece on the deal, there are fundamentally two transactions going on, right? There's, there's, there's a, there's a, a sell side for cash transaction, and then there's a buy side for cash transaction from your point of view. Again, I, that's not the way the money flows, but that's effectively psychologically how I tell my clients to look at it because why, why wouldn't you analyze it like any other investment you're going to make if you can end up with equity in that, in that, in that entity? Well, it's great advice. I mean, that, that's absolutely correct. I, so you're doing your clients a great service. Why just give them straight? You know, gonna, I, sometimes I feel like I, we will give them that information. They're not actively pursuing it because it's like, guys, I don't want to wake up six months from now and you say I didn't tell you something. I mean, like, here it is. So, right, right. Yeah, it's amazing to me how often they don't think to, to really have to do that level of due diligence. And especially, I mean, listen, even if it's, forget 60%, even if it's 20%, that's a meaningful portion of the deal. So, yeah, so it's great advice. And that's great that you offer that up. And it's smart because like you said, Matt, it's, it's never, it's never to anybody's benefit. In One of the things I say, I do trainings on negotiating. I got my negotiating book out. And one of the things I say is that in business, very, very often in negotiation, is actually the start or continuation of an existing relationship, right? It's not, mm-hmm. not negotiating something and then you'll never see the person again. Right. So if that's the case, if you pull something over on somebody in a negotiation, but it's the start of an ongoing relationship, like what, like, yeah, that, how is that going to work for anybody? Totally. I totally agree. Listen, great stuff, Matt. Listen, I've, I, I've been impressed with what you've built at, uh, at Beacon Point, And I think advisors should definitely, for the advisors looking for that integrated model, I should definitely have you on the list of firms and certainly looking forward to, you know, we, we tend to, um, reverend, especially these days and we do, we do some buy side, we got some buy side going on, but we do a lot more sell side these days because obviously most of the buyers are the funded PE back firms and the PE back firms tend to use big, big law firms on their side. So. Uh, but, but, but it's also, it's good for us because we have a lot, a lot more sell side representation. And what I find is that the, um, 
uh, the buyer, the sophisticated buyers and the council like to deal with sophisticated council on the other side. So it's, it's actually helpful for us to help get deals done. So yes, I'm excited about what you built. My final question on the podcast, Matt, is always actually about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And it's funny to ask this in this space where the move to independence is always is about freedom to some extent. But for me, that means everything from freedom from people from oppression to the world to the reason why I haven't had a boss in, in, in decades and I run my old firm and I'm an entrepreneur. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, I think, you know, I used to joke with one of my former partners, he retired actually with a KPR transaction, but yep. I used to joke with him. I'm like, you know, we need to make this wildly successful because then we can choose who we do and don't want to talk with. When you're not, when you're not successful, you kind of are forced to deal with whatever comes up and whoever comes up. And so I, I think the ability to really have freedom of relationship, who you want to involve with is the huge thing. I mean, that's, that's it. So no jerks allowed is the first three strains of the business. And it's everything we do. And, and I, thankfully I'm in a position now where, where we can be pretty selective. Well, that's good. Love that. Uh, Matt, I appreciate you being a great guest on the DealQuest podcast and participating in this special series with the leaders of the RA integrators and aggregators to be able to give the industry a better feel for the different options out there. And you're certainly a, one that should be on a list for many people. Oh, hey, thanks. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.